Unlike most of my episodes, this one gets a little risque. Be warned. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. Oh. The CIA agent walked into the room and stopped dead in his tracks. He'd seen some kinky things in this San Francisco whorehouse, but nothing compared to this. There were multiple prostitutes and a single man all hunched over a table, and they were doing something he never imagined. Crafting. Specifically, they were sex crafting. The whorehouse was part of a CIA operation trying to exploit sex to wring information out of spies and prisoners of war. No one knew sex better than prostitutes, so many were on the CIA payroll. But their knowledge of sex far outpaced that of the straight-laced, missionary-positioned CIA agents they were instructing. So someone got the bright idea of getting a bunch of pipe cleaners and making Kama Sutra stick figures. The women twisted the pipe cleaners into every sex position known to man. A CIA photographer then snapped pictures of everything and sent them back to Washington, where deputy secretaries in dark suits poured over every shot. Jeez Louise. Strictly for research, of course. Where is her leg? It was all part of a little-known CIA mission called Operation Midnight Climax. And the thing was, this wasn't even the wildest part of Midnight Climax. Not by a long shot. Hi, I'm Sam Keen, and you're listening to The Disappearing Spoon a topsy-turvy, sciency history podcast, where footnotes become the real story. The narcotics agent was bored and probably drunk. He was lying in a hotel room in New Orleans, staring at the ceiling and playing with his twenty-two caliber pistol. So? He decided to redecorate a little bit by shooting his initials into the molding. G. W. For George White. George White was raised in California, the son of a banker and a mayor. He had a shaved, bald head and was pretty pudgy, weighing in at over 200 pounds. He also had the most startling blue eyes anyone had ever seen. As a young man, he became a star newspaper reporter in San Francisco. He had a real talent for slipping undercover into gambling and drug dens and getting hot stories. But ultimately, reporting was too tame for White. He wanted power, and he wanted to immerse himself in the criminal underworld. So he became a narcotics agent, and a damn good one. It helped that White genuinely liked lowlifes. He counted pimps, hookers, hitmen, and pornographers among his friends. He also felt bad for people he busted, and especially their children. So he often struck deals with people that he arrested to give him information in exchange for reduced charges. But White could be a hard-ass when necessary. He liked to prowl around jazz joints. He busted Billie Holiday for opium once, although to his chagrin, she later beat the charges. And at times, he could be outright sadistic. He once told a subordinate that, hell, it was easy to get criminals to talk. Quote, if it was a girl, you put her tits in a drawer. Uh. And then slam the drawer. Uh. 
If it was a guy, you took his cock, no, 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 no. and you hit it with a hammer. End quote. His whole career, White tap danced on the wrong side of the law. During World War II, White joined the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, the precursor to the CIA. His activities there were murky. Legend has it that he killed a Japanese spy in Calcutta using a Bruce Lee-like power punch that blew a hole in the man's skull. He then hung a picture of the corpse on his wall. In truth, White had simply shot the spy, but he really did hang the corpse's picture on his wall. White also got tangled up in the OSS's search for a truth serum, a drug that, when given to Nazi prisoners, would supposedly make them spill all their military secrets. As a narcotics agent, White was plenty familiar with several powerful drugs that might work as truth serums. Hell, he'd tried most of them. His first instinct was to use THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. But his first field test in 1943 was almost suicidally reckless. For the test, he called up an acquaintance of his, a mob hitman named August Del Gracio. Del Gracio and others had been helping the OSS with another harebrained scheme during the war, to use New York Mafia connections to help the Allies invade Sicily and wrestle it away from the Axis. But however useful he was for the war, Del Gracio was truly a bad hombre. As White knew, Del Gracio had personally murdered several stool pigeons who'd been working with the U.S. government to testify against the Mafia. But White didn't care. In fact, Del Gracio's fearsomeness made him the perfect person to dope. White figured that if the drugs cracked a tough SOB like him, well, coercing Nazi spies would be a piece of cake. So White invited Del Gracio off to his apartment one day for a chat and slipped him a cigarette doped with THC. So how did Del Gracio react? Like a teenage noob. <laughs> the hitman got stoned to the bejesus and spent two hours singing like a canary, spilling everything he knew about the drug trade to White. The trial was considered a resounding success. After World War II ended, the Office of Strategic Services disbanded and the CIA took its place. And while there weren't prisoners of war to interrogate anymore, there were Cold War spies. So the hunt for a truth serum continued. But instead of marijuana, the CIA now asked George White to test a new, more promising compound, lysergic acid diethylamide, or LSD. Now, compared to slamming people's junk in drawers, using LSD to make spies talk seems pretty tame. But the drug still needed testing before the CIA used it on spies. And White's method of testing it was wildly unethical. That's because he tested it on regular people and did so without their knowledge or permission. He conducted these tests in what he ironically called his safe houses. He opened his first safe house in a Greenwich Village apartment in New York in May 1953. Hearkening back to his reporter days, why went undercover and posed as either a sailor or a bohemian painter. He'd then trawl the bars of Manhattan and pick up women or prostitutes and lure them back to his pad. There, he'd slip an LSD Mickey into their drinks, then sit back and watch the results. They weren't pretty. 
In a dope diary, he recorded the women's reactions. Gloria gets horrors, or Janet sky high. Based on the drug's tumultuous effects, White gave LSD the codename Stormy. Although he enjoyed New York, White transferred back to San Francisco in 1955. And here's where things got truly wild. Whenever the CIA runs a secret program, it picks a codename for it. And these codenames are usually empty or innocuous. But Operation Midnight Climax was exactly what it sounded like. For the San Francisco safe house, White rented an apartment on Telegraph Hill with stunning views of the Golden Gate Bridge and Alcatraz. He then decorated it like a bordello. There were pictures of can-can dancers and manacled women in fishnet stockings and leather halters. It was supposed to look rich, one colleague remembered, but it was furnished like crap. More darkly, White installed two-way observational mirrors and put recording devices into the electrical outlets to monitor the people having sex. To round up test subjects, one of White's subordinates dressed up in a pimp costume with a pinstripe zoot suit, a wide-brimmed hat, and a huge fake diamond ring. This faux pimp even had a harem of hookers, friends of White's who were in on the scam. They'd pick up Johns at bars below Telegraph Hill and bring them back to the pad. There, they'd slip LSD into the men's drinks, sometimes with pre-coated swizzle sticks. The women earned up to $100 per night for their troubles, plus money from the transaction. They also got chits from George White, meaning that if they got arrested on unrelated business, they could call up White and he'd spring them from jail. White always looked after the lowlifes he cared about. Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture? No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in true accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. For his part, 
White kept working as a narcotics agent by day, but nearly every night he turned into a voyeur. He'd slip into the observation room behind the two-way mirror. There, he'd open the room's refrigerator and remove the pitcher of chilled martinis he always kept inside. And in the weirdest detail of all, White would then take a seat to watch. But he didn't sit down in a chair. Rather, he sat on a portable toilet that he'd installed right behind the mirror. Really. And as he sat on his toilet throne, he'd guzzle his martinis and salivate over the drug-fueled sex until he blacked out. Then he'd get up the next morning and do the same thing, busting people for drugs by day, then retreating to the safe house and helping administer those same drugs by night. But White and his colleagues did learn something from watching all that sex. Again, the point of Operation Midnight Climax was the drugs, to develop a truth serum. The sex was incidental, just a way to lure men into the trap. But the CIA was starting to realize that drugs weren't very reliable. Sometimes people did blab, like the mob hitman. But just as often, people talked terrified gibberish about lizard monsters chasing after them, or the walls melting before their very eyes. Drugs were simply too unreliable to serve as truth serums. Sex, on the other hand, had potential. CIA agents began noticing that the prostitutes were actually pretty sharp amateur psychologists. As their clients got more and more revved up during sex, the women would suddenly stop and propose doing something extra dirty. Maybe one of those pipe cleaner positions? Now, trying a pipe cleaner position would, of course, cost the men extra money, sometimes a lot more money. But if the hooker read the man correctly, he almost always agreed to pay. In the throes of passion, he seemed to have no free will. So, could the CIA use that lack of willpower to wring secrets out of people? Could they get them to pay for pipe cleaner positions, not with money, but information? Alas, this didn't seem to work. In the middle of coitus, as one agent put it, the guy was focused solely on his hormonal needs. He could barely remember his name, much less complex secrets. But before long, the CIA agents did discover something intriguing that you could often coax secrets out of people after sex. Johns knew the drill when it came to picking out prostitutes. The women made money on a per-client basis. So as soon as a guy finished, she cleaned up, got dressed, and scrammed to seek out more clients. But if a prostitute broke that pattern, the men were startled. That is, if she curled up next to him after sex and lit a cigarette and pretended that she just wanted to bask in his studliness for a while. The guy was immensely flattered, so much so that he became emotionally vulnerable and let his guard down without realizing it. Men liked having their egos stroked, too. And with a few leading questions and some well-timed giggles, <laughs> the women could get the men to blab about almost anything. Trade secrets, crimes, degrading fantasies you could use to blackmail them. It wasn't quite a truth serum. But listeners, if you want people to talk about something taboo, after sex is a psychologically promising time. The last years of Operation Midnight Climax were even wilder than the early years. By the 1960s, White was operating five so-called national security whorehouses, two in New York and three in the Bay Area. 
and he was testing more chemicals than ever on unsuspecting victims, and not just in the safe houses either. He'd go out drinking in nightclubs and dope people's Manhattans and old fashions just for kicks. And some of the new drugs weren't even truth serums. White's team supposedly investigated early versions of mace and Viagra. They also exposed Johns to stink bombs and sneezing powders and compounds that produced instant diarrhea. White also got off his toilet now and then and began partaking in the sex scenes himself. He started off tame by having prostitutes spank him. He then discovered a fetish for high heels and would pay women in high heels to whip him. White's drinking, however, was catching up with him. A colleague once referred to his eight martini lunches. The low point came one night when another CIA agent walked into a safe house to find White slumped on the floor. On the ground next to him lay an empty bottle of Gibson's gin. White also had his pistol out and was shooting wax slugs at a fat, ugly man who wouldn't stop staring at him. It was his own reflection in the mirror. With things getting out of hand, the CIA shut down the safe houses by 1966, and most records about what went on in them were destroyed in a purge of CIA documents under President Richard Nixon. In fact, the American public might never have learned about George White and Operation Midnight Climax if not for a reporter at the New York Times. In 1974, he broke the story that the CIA had been doping people illegally for years without their permission. This revelation pissed off two junior deputies in the Gerald Ford administration. They suggested going after the reporter and prosecuting him for leaking government secrets. You might actually recognize the deputies' names. Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. By that point, George White had retired. He ended up becoming a fire marshal in a small town in California. He was something of a local vigilante there, busting teenagers for, of all things, smoking pot. That didn't stop him from drunk driving around town at night and leaving skid marks across people's lawns. White eventually died, unsurprisingly, of liver failure in 1975. But he died without regrets, without even second thoughts. As he once wrote to a colleague, quote, I was a very minor missionary, actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the all-highest? The CIA had many rogue agents during the depths of the Cold War in the 1950s and 1960s. But unlike most of them, George White never justified his actions with pious baloney about saving the free world. White was wicked through and through, and he knew it, and he reveled in that wickedness every day of his life. For more information about this episode, visit patreon.com slash disappearingspoon. There, you can also suggest stories for future episodes, get signed merchandise, and find bonus material like extra podcasts and pictures. Also visit samkeen.com slash podcast. There you can find more incredible stories from my books and learn how to book me as a speaker at your school or event. 
And if you like this podcast, please spread the word to others, both online and in person. I'm listener-supported, and word of mouth means a lot. Thanks for listening to The Disappearing Spoon.